We are getting ready to roll right now as I speak. We're rolling. We're live. We're doing another episode of the Talking Lead AK Corner. Welcome back, AK aficionados. This is season three, episode nine of 12. So we're knocking them out. We've only got, what's my math? How many more is that, Brian? Three? <laughs> three more episodes we got? Sorry, I had to get off mute there. Uh, slow on the draw, fresh back from vacation. Yeah, three to go. Yeah, we got to get Brian uh, kick-started here. He's, uh, he's been in la-la land for the past week or so, so he's back to yeah. the real world. Got to get his brain going. Yeah, my first time off in something like three years, and um, boy, it was nice. Uh, but I'm happy to be back and back cranking, but yeah. Yeah, we're glad to have you back, and uh, I know all our listeners are too. And I think we've got a um, uh, some excitement for this episode. We've been talking about it for a while now, and uh, it was our guests that kind of really just kind of pushed us over the edge to do this because we were looking for somebody who really knew about uh, this variant of the AK-47, the Valmet, and joining us today for the second time, so you're an official leadhead now, Nils, is Nils Gravelius. Welcome in, Nils. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I'm very pleased to see both of you. Author, private detective, man of the world, reaching out there, uh, doing us, doing the 2A community right out on the left coast. How are things out I'm, there? Uh, I'm operating deep within occupied territory here, but I'm happy to broadcast for you. Um, I think that we should have a, a short discussion as to the Finnish defense philosophy as to weapons acquisition. Uh, what you need to know is that they are pirates and thieves and proud to be that. <laughs> uh, contemporaneous with the Russian Civil War, the Finns split from Imperial Russia and underwent their own civil war, wherein the White Guard fought off the, the, the communists within Finland. And the officer who led that White Guard was Gustav von Mannerheim, who later became justifiably famous for leading the Finnish military in World War II. Hmm. Uh, von Mannerheim was a Swedish speaker, but considered himself a Finn. And he was an officer in the Tsar's army. He once led a mapping expedition in the in Soviet cent or Russian Central Asia during the Tsarist uh, era. And uh, uh, after defeating the Reds in the Finnish Civil War, they had to form their own defense forces to keep Finland secure. Uh, Sweden was no threat to Finland. If you look at uh, any geographic reference, you'll see the only country that presents a threat to Finland is Russia. Mm. And they have a 1,300-kilometer shared border. Now, the terrain of Finland is such that uh, they can use small numbers of troops to hold off anybody trying to invade because the invasion route north is swamps and, and dense forest and lake country 
and narrow defiles where small numbers of troops can hold off much superior forces. And the Finns have, have demonstrated an ability to do that. And they got pretty nasty Finland weather up there too, right? It gets uh, brutally cold. It's uh, Arctic and subarctic weather in the summer. It's mosquito swamps and, and alder trees and break your leg time when you try to cross those swamps, that sort of thing. Lots of mud. Um, it's such that the uh, they can train a lot of troops to, to handle defending the country at 300 meters and less, which is why... Uh, their most famous sniper of World War II, whose name escapes me at this moment, did most of his sniping with uh, iron sights on an 1891 Nagant. The Finns have never made a single... Go ahead. Oh, Simo, gosh, Simo is yes, his, his name. Like and... Simo Hayek. Or, there yeah. you go. He, uh, he, he wielded an 1891 Mosin-Nagant, and the, the Nagant is key to, to understanding the Valmet, in that they're uh, the same bore size. Uh, it, the, the Finns never made a single Nagant of any kind. And if you look at Nagants that are Finnish marked, say, on Gunbroker, on Gunbroker, any Finnish marked Nagant was captured from the Russians. The Finns never made a single Nagant receiver of their own. All they did was improve upon captured weapons. So that we all know that the 1891 Mosin-Nagant is chambered in 7.62 by 5.4 rimmed, which I call 7.62 Imperial. It has roughly the ballistics of the 30-06, but it is a rimmed cartridge with a great taper to it. Uh, which facilitates the use of, in a machine gun very nicely. But the Valmet is not chambered in this cartridge. The Valmet is chambered in M1943 7.62 by 3.9. So after the Winter War came the Continuation War, which the Finns waged uh, until 1945, and they had to sue for peace with the Russians because the Russians just had more, more numbers than they did. So the annual Finnish defense budget, even today, on paper is about $4 billion, which is just a drop in the bucket considering the, the threat that they face. So the Finns are always casting about to acquire weapons on the cheap, but they want to have very effective light infantry. After World War II, uh, Kalashnikov developed the AK-47. The first documented use of the AK-47 that could be documented in the international press was the invasion of Hungary in uh, 1956. And by then the Finns had already acquired their first AK-47s, which they called RK-54s. And the AK-47s that they acquired I don't know if it's 2,000 or 4,000 of them were bought on the open market for hard cash from Poland. And they used those uh, milled AK-47s as a test bed and gradually developed the Valmet RK-60, which was their, their prototype. And from the RK-60, they came up to the RK-62. And RK just stands for assault rifle in the Finnish language. Yeah, so it's 
Renal Kakavari. Uh, it's a, a difficult done. language <laughs> and yeah. defies easy uh, interpretation because it's an Altaic language. It has the same linguistic root as Korean, oddly enough. Hmm. That is interesting. So, yes, the, the Finns are a clannish bunch with a small defense budget who face a grave threat on their southern border uh, across the Karelian Peninsula. They acquired their first couple of thousand AK-47s from Poland and started working from there. And what they came up with was a rifle that used as many parts in common. You could take the entire fire control group out of a Valmet RK-62 and the bolt, other than the bolt uh, piston, and, and, yeah, and bolt carrier, you could use all of that in, say, an Occam AK. You could use all that stuff. What the what the Valmet has on it that makes it slightly different on the piston is it has a star-shaped attachment just abaft the piston, and that is to make up for the lack of fluting in the gas tube. That keeps it centered in the gas tube so that it mates up ideally with the piston socket uh, of the gas block. It has adjustable sights, adjustable front and rear. It has peep sights mounted to a rigid receiver. And if we closely examine the receiver on the Volmet, we will see that it has uh, uh, sheet metal reinforcing uh, spot welded around the bottom edge to keep it rigid. It pops into place rather nicely and is held in place. Once it's zeroed, it holds it zero nicely. It has a peep rear sight with a flip forward night sight. Those of you familiar with the Galil, which was a development of the Val, of, uh, from the Valmet, uh, it's an Israeli development, you will see that they're relatively similar, but they are not the same. The front sights are almost identical. Uh, the front sight can be adjusted for uh, windage and elevation, and it has a flip-up uh, night sight, just abaft. Uh, it has no bayonet lug mounted to the gas block, unlike the Galileo. The, the, the bayonet lug on the Volmet, and I'm holding up a Volmet flash or a, a muzzle brake here. Oh, hold on, let me it's switch. It's mounted on the underside. Let me switch. And, Right, and it is a unique bayonet. The bayonet for the hold Valmet. it up again. Well, I'll hold it up. I don't have the bayonet here with me, but the Valmet bayonet looks like a fishing knife, but it's it's much thicker, so it doesn't look like a fishing knife. Those of you familiar with a with a Fiskars fillet knife, Fiskars makes the bayonet for the Valmet, so it's much thicker, has a much thicker spine, but it's almost a dagger. Um, the uh, Finnish term for a uh, knife is a puko, and it's uh, 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 a tool of art peculiar to Finnish hunters who are always fishermen as well. So the, the Soviets, what they contended with in invading the Karelian Peninsula in 1940 was a nation of hunters led by uh, a very motivated knowledgeable, skilled general in, in von Mannerheim. So the Finns lost 25,000 men in the Winter War, and the Russians lost a quarter million, roughly. 
Uh, and But yeah, ultimately the Russians outnumbered them and were able to drive the Finns from their own Karelian Peninsula. But the Finns hurt them badly. And you will notice that at the end of World War II, Stalin did not persist in, in completing an invasion and takeover of Finland, knowing that it, even, even to a man used to casualties in the millions, that it would be a hard sell uh, to the uh, Politburo to lose so many troops taking something like Finland. Finland is not wealthy. You, by invading Finland, you don't get oil reserves, gold reserves, anything like that. You get territorial fishing rights, and you have to share them with the Swedes. Now, the Finns are justifiably proud of their country. I'm not trying to crumb on Finland and suggest that it's not a country worth having or defending. To hey, the great Finns, skiing there from what I hear. <laughs> oh, yes. Lots of skiing, lots of hunting, and lots of fishing. Uh, now, what the Finns uh, have done is they've, sort of like the Swiss, they've made themselves indigestible. Indigestible men don't get eaten. And that is their essential uh, military philosophy. So in, in their supply chain, they acquire just enough of their enemy's military DNA as to make it cheaper for them to defend. They captured vast quantities of Soviet war stocks in World War II, and we're continuing to use them into the 1950s and 60s. They're still using uh, Mosin-Nagant rifles as sniper weapons. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the Mosin-Nagant, uh, uh, you know. So that when the Finns acquired rifles from the Russians, they would shoot them, and they would determine if they were accurate or not. And if they were not accurate, they were cannibalized for parts. And then they wound up with several... Uh, Nagants by necessity with cracked receivers. And the first few thousand Volmet RK-62s had barrels that were taken from, from 1891 Mosin Nagants and just rechambered, turned down, journaled, uh, and made into semi-automatic weapons. Oh, wow. The RK-62 is still, 60 years later, in the field with the Finnish military, uh, they've tried to replace it with the RK-95, which is supposed to be a more advanced version of a, of a Volmet RK-62. But the RK-95 is more complex and more costly to manufacture. It's a nice rifle, but it, it's, not, it's not a great improvement on the RK-62. So what the Finns have done is they have just continued to modernize their, their RK-62s and use them. Uh, they sent a lot of RK-62s to ISAF when they sent troops to Afghanistan. And the RK-62 acquitted itself well. Now, the Finns being cheap and being pirates in the way that they are, they sent several uh, shipping containers of captured AK-47s and, and uh, PKM machine guns back to Finland. And over the years, uh, Finland has acquired East German, Romanian, Russian, and Chinese AKMs, which they use to equip second-line troops. Some are bought on the open market, some are captured in other countries, that sort of thing. Their first PKM machine guns, oddly enough, surfaced after the 1973 Arab-Israeli War. 
The Finns did not have PKM machine guns until after that war. The Russians don't sell them these machine guns. The Russians don't sell them BMPs or D-30 artillery pieces or anything else. But the Finns have a talent for acquiring Russian military hardware or uh, German copies of, of Russian military hardware or Egyptian copies of Russian military hardware. The Finnish way is to make do with less. And I'll give you a great example of how this translates into other arms. The Finns use 122 and 152 millimeter uh, artillery pieces, big cannons, which are Russian calibers. They are not NATO. They do have some NATO caliber artillery. So what the Finns do is they go out and they buy the cheapest artillery shells that they can find. Uh, Egyptian made, Pakistani made, Russian made, whatever, but they're buying them on the open market. And then to ensure the most effective use of that artillery, they put highly sophisticated Nokia fuses in them. So they're, they're using the best and the cheapest at the same time. They train enough Finnish men that there's a bare minimum of 238,000 conscripted light infantry ready to hit the, hit, hit the woods at a moment's notice. Any enemy facing Finland has no idea how many men are ready to go at any given time. There might be two brigades, there might be eight brigades. They train their men and some men serve six months and some men serve a year of active duty. And then they're in the reserves until they're 50 or 60. And to the Finns, it's a point of pride to be in the military. They're called the Spartans of the North for a reason. Uh, unlike some of their Scandinavian neighbors, they're very proud to serve in their military. And it's a way of, of enjoying the privileges of we weapons ownership uh, within Europe. They're allowed to keep semi-automatic weapons in their homes. Some of them have fully automatic weapons if they're in the Udi Jaeger regiment, which is their special forces, that sort of thing. And they pride themselves on marksmanship and military readiness and a lot of these guys are into biathlon, cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, mm -hmm. backpacking. Uh, you'll never, you, you rarely will you meet a fat Finn, and you'll never see a fat Finn in the Finnish army. It just doesn't happen. And then they get, uh, they get a certain number of immigrants to Finland from other countries, even from Africa. But they make it so that it's such a an enthusiastic social prospect within Finland that even the sons of immigrants see African conscripts, Afghani conscripts, Arab conscripts serving within the thing, shoulder to shoulder with, with other Finns. And that's just the way the Finns operate. Uh, they have made themselves indigestible. Now, the, the uh, flash suppressor, or the muzzle brake for this particular weapon, as I'll show it to you here, is uh, in some ways a copy of an Austrian design called a Stoll flash uh, suppressor. This particular muzzle brake uh, has three prongs on it, and it is also a wire cutter. So let's say you're a, a sapper or a, a rifleman within a Finnish unit, and you mm. need to cut the wire to, to, breed, to, to make an assault on an objective. You hook this over the wire and you twist it to hold it taut and you discharge your weapon and it cuts the wire. 
Uh, that, that's how you that's how you breach concertina wire with this weapon. They're not much for and sneaking up on soldier, people, are they? Every soldier who's an infantryman <laughs> has this weapon. Uh, the troops who are, who are second line, like mechanics, clerks, truck drivers, air crew, they have East German AKMs or Chinese AKMs. Uh, most recently, they've acquired Dasan machine AKMs from South Korea. Uh, the Finns uh, took a hard look at what the South Koreans were manufacturing and decided to adopt them for the Finnish military forces. And there are civilian organizations which train Finnish troops. They have a, like a, a training association for the Finnish military that runs like academy classes for training men in marksmanship and skiing, winter survival. Uh, this is as good a time as any, Nils, if you don't. Or I'd love to break in on some Finnish cultural stuff, uh, but we can do that either after no, you're go done ahead. talking about the flash shot. Okay, cool. So um, I had the opportunity to work in Finland, um, commuting there for for several years uh, with a I was part of a an employee of a multinational industrial physics group, cool. and they purchased a Finnish company. And uh, in order to it was sort of a cold war until we all went over there and then we became best friends. And um, I can speak to the accuracy of what Nils is is uh, commenting on with regard to the pride and ability of uh, the Finnish men and women. Um, I came across some incredibly impressive female engineers who were also prior service and everybody there was prior service. And when it's I, like Israel, I think that, that like Israel and these women were fierce. These are not, you know, yes, they're they're uh, attractive and uh, clearly, you know, very athletic. Like you said, not a lot of fat people in Finland. Another, in addition to technology, one of their other exports is uh, race car drivers and like Formula One drivers. And uh, the female VP of uh, of engineering that I was working with uh, was one of the best drivers I've ever seen. And they actually have their traffic lights. They have a signal that lets you know when it's going to be green. And they will drive on cobblestone streets in the middle of winter with studded tires. They will drive in such a way that is terrifying, but they are very good. Um, lastly, they, uh, as Nils alluded to, they're one of the only um, examples of a uh, a functional first world country with two official languages on every government building. There is the spelling. Um, it'll be spelled out in Swedish and also in Finnish. And there are a good number of ethnic Swedes living in Finland. And one of there's a group of islands called called the Oland Islands, where half of my family is from, that are ethnic Swedes living in territorial Finland. Um, the gosh, there was one. Oh. The last very interesting thing that I know about their culture is that they have the highest educated people on the face of the earth. And yet they do not begin to teach their kids to read until they have reached the age of eight. And that's beginning to read. And it, it we wonder what's so broken about our system, our educational system. And this idea of, of getting kids into school younger and younger is, is patently absurd when you look at the people that are doing it right. Um, so even though it's a an inhospitable chunk of dirt, the intellectual uh, capacity and and the technology of these folks is extremely extremely impressive. So they're kind of like a Wakanda. 
is they hide the best of their stuff. You know, they make it like Neil said, they make it look unpalatable for somebody who want to come in, but then they've got this smoke screen. And once you get past that smoke screen, then they got the goods. I have, I have not seen it. I, I, I'm going to uh, uh, not have an opinion on any of the above. <laughs> not in the Marvel I'm, movies, I'm, are you? <laughs> I will. I will tell you the Finns are still using the first tank that the Soviets developed after World War II, which is the T-55, and they use tanks. They don't have big armored formations. They use tanks to su su support their infantry, to shoot their infantry into their objective, and for engineers to clear uh, objects, you know, shoot, uh, shoot away barbed wire objects or, or log cribs, or to launch uh, line charges across a minefield to clear a minefield fast, uh, plowing for mines. But the T-55 was introduced in 1955 that's how old that tank is and the Finns just modernize and modernize and modernize and just keep making use of the same hull over and over again which is very wise a four billion dollar annual defense budget and they're indigestible yeah, it's only and like it's one like a little over one percent of their gross national product is all they spend towards their military something like that yeah not quite two percent yeah yeah, but, very remarkable. Anybody with a pair, anybody with a pair of balls is part of their their military defense system. You know, make no mistake of it. And Brian is correct about the women. Women do serve in frontline infantry units in the in the Finnish army. Very cool. So that's uh, a good that's a good um, little history about Finland and the military. Niels, thank you for that. And that'll kind of get us into. Let's talk about so. You know, you, you said they're very good pirates, <laughs> and they, they took the AK-47, they re-engineered it, uh, and then they came up with arguably a better version of the AK-47 with their their RK, the Valmet or Seiko. Sako, Seiko, how do you say that? Some people say Seiko, some people say Sako. Well, uh, officially it's Sako. But we're Americans. We can say Seiko, can we not? <laughs> uh, Nobody stopped me yet. <laughs> okay, so, so Tika has also made parts for the Valmet. And the, the reason, one of the reasons it's so hard to get a Valmet is because the Finns don't surplus any parts. They don't, they don't take their Valmets out of service and cut them into parts kits and put them on a pallet and ship them to, to, to Mark Krebs. They don't do it. So you're having to hunt and pack for parts off of the few thousand that were imported in the 60s and 70s, uh, or you're making parts, or you're getting uh, the replacement parts that are sometimes marketed by a few European co uh, companies. And we have uh, a few people in this country now making perfect uh uh, copies of, of smaller parts for the Volmet. And because it's it's like a kitchen table industry, I don't feel comfortable identifying anybody specifically, but there are a couple of people making very high quality copies of finished parts. One of them makes parts for airsoft companies, reverse engineers uh, parts uh, um, for all sorts of uh, weapons for companies in Asia to make airsoft. 
but but this person is also making perfect copies of Valmet parts. The the hardest to obtain being the the rear sight assembly, and uh, this person has perfectly copied that. And uh, oh wow, there on the dust covers that we're talking about. Huh, the rear sight, the rear sight on the dust cover. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that 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 that's what we're talking about. Um, so, so there are a couple of builders like uh, Jeff Miller at Hillbilly Firearms in Tennessee has talked about building a Volmet rifle if he can accumulate the parts, and it's it's proven very difficult. And and Jeff is a very knowledgeable, worldly guy. He's traveled all over the world, and um, it's just difficult to get the parts in. So it's it, what it's done by by dint of scarcity is it's made the Valmet into a little bit more than it really is. I mean, it's considered unobtainable. If you look at Gunbroker, you'll see RK-62s go for eight and $9,000 for mm -hmm. just a basic RK-62 <laughs> rifle. Right, yeah, it's amazing. And, and they're, they're great rifles but they're hard to obtain just, and there are only a few countries that have actually used them qatar, qatar had some yeah. and libya had some and the ones that libya got they got from the east germans yeah and i saw and the ones that know. they did for qatar they did one for their special guard they're all nickel plated um have you seen the pictures of those they're pretty badass i, I have and uh, it's it's definitely pimp my ride stuff, but, <laughs> it's but no but doubt, no doubt. Qatari special forces also had about two thousand uh, Valmet seventy ones that were not uh, pimped up with nickel. Um, and and Libya had some of the seventy eights which were configured as RPKs. Occasionally, you'll you'll find some really beat up model seventy eight parts. And you'll know that it came from Libya. Okay, that's a that's an RK62 disassembled. Yeah. So let's talk uh, about let's go in for our listeners, Niels and Brian, and let's talk about what they've gone in and they've they've changed. What's different from the AK47 and the Valmet? And we'll just use the RK62 because that's that's basically their base model, the first one they came out with. And of course, like you said, they constantly improve. So they've improved upon this as well with their, their newer versions. Yeah. Okay. So it has a flanged magazine release, which is in a housing uh, just forward of the trigger guard that juts out to the right just a bit that is easier to get purchase on with an, uh, the thumb of an Arctic mitten. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, You'll notice that the magazine, in this case a polymer magazine, has an eyelet on the forward edge for attaching a lanyard or a loop of leather. And that is for fishing the magazine out of your magazine pouch in Arctic mittens. That's the purpose of that. The earlier steel magazine has an eyelet on the on the bottom plate, mm -hmm. on the floor plate. Right. Okay, and now so you look at the the stock looks really Star Trek space gun stuff. <laughs> it is a hollow tube. It is made of steel. It has a, a rubber jacket around it so that your face doesn't freeze to it in sub-zero weather. And the crutch attachment at the back is held on with 
uh, I think it's sweated on. And then at the very back of that, there is a trap door that opens, and that's where your cleaning kit goes. Yeah, it's a hollow tube. So yeah. Yep, and and that is for storage of a cleaning kit and maybe some tools, that sort of thing. Some smoke. The sling. Uh, yeah, yeah. You could you could carry a cigarette lighter in there and maybe a a, a thin cigar like. Clint Eastwood would smoke uh, when he's on the run. Do Finnish people but, smoke? Uh, is that is that even a thing there? They're so healthy. They smoke. <laughs> I've, I've I've seen you know even even the women smoke sometimes. But so this, uh, this made me want to ask also with these tubes because the the pistol grip, and it's not in this one the picture that we're showing to our video viewers. Uh, but the original one was just a it was a tube also. It was just a, a tube that they had uh, uh, put little ridges in. They ribbed it for your pleasure, I guess, for better grip with those big mitts. Um, but does uh -huh. is Finland known for bicycles? Do they make a lot of bicycles there? <laughs> Absolutely. And that is why that earlier grip is called the bicycle grip. Yeah. But I was thinking maybe Valmet used to make bicycles, so they were just using old bicycle parts, and that's how they came up with this stuff. Uh, you know, know, Marty, you could you could be right. You, you could be more right than you know, my friend. Just me speculating, and, but go ahead. Okay, well, you could you could very easily be correct. So um, that uh, the, the 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 trigger guard detaches so that you can get to to the grip uh, to a to a shooting grip in an Arctic mitten more easily. Mm -hmm. The sling is made of reindeer leather, uh, and it's not because reindeer leather is exotic. It's because reindeer is common as house cats in Finland, <laughs> and they all eat them. Uh, don't tell Santa. But um, I have seen photos of Finnish troops in extreme cold weather wrap their sling around the tube of the stock to create a cheek riser when they're using a, an optic with the RK-62. Mm. And the improvements to the RK-62, the RK-62M has a scope mount mounted to the left side, riveted in place, that is a dovetail. And you might want to raise your cheek just a bit, and they'll wrap the sling around the tube to create a little bit of a riser. And now one get, one thing I'd love to one thing I'd love to point out that I think is absolutely brilliant that uh, the Israelis copied is that there is a single roll pin holding the stock uh, to the receiver, and anybody who's mucked around with an AK knows what a bear the standard rear tang is if you're installing a new stock on it, and um, this. This idea of, and Marty's got a folder up now, which works a little bit differently, but the, in the previous photo, um, you'll see a, uh, a roll pin in the rear that is copied on the Galil. And uh, the amount of hassle that takes out of the situation, it's hard to overstate how cool that is. Um, and it, no, it's not elegant. Yes, it works. And um in my mind that that makes it really brilliant it's it's inexpensive and you can well 
in terms of manufacturing it, you know, having a, a stock that wobbles around is a really big deal. It's not good. And um, but boring precision holes is not hard and making tubing to a precision diameter is not hard. And so what they've done there is ensure a very rigid lockup with a very simple means of installation and removal. Yeah. And and what it shares in common with the other variants of the Kalashnikov is that it is almost soldier proof. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a hard thing to 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 break this yeah. rifle. And uh, uh, the other com other comment I'll make, uh, sorry to cut in on you, Nils, is that um, not many people I don't think know this, but uh, Magpul gets its name from uh, um, early on. I guess early aughts, something like that, is when they were founded, and it was that the owner had, or the founder, had come up with a really cool, they called them ranger tabs or ranger loops, a, a little rubber um, butt for uh, USGI mags uh, that would do two things. It, it shielded the bottom of the magazine um, that I'm told, I haven't run an, an AR very much, but I'm told that if you drop a, a metal AR mag enough, those little folded over tabs will work harden and shatter and eventually the whole thing will dump its guts. Well, the, the Ranger tab or the mag pole that, um, that he came up with was a rubberized deal, uh, that protected that area and also afforded that loop. And it's fun to see it having come in so much earlier in finish use, uh, due to the snow. I took all mine oh. off. I, I used to have some laying around that had that tab on it still, but I took, because they gave you the ability to replace those with just flat bottoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I took all mine off. Yeah. Oh, and I think the original Magpul wasn't that thing. It was a rubber, um, a rubber sleeve with a big rubber loop that went over the metal one. But I know the Ranger ah. Tab thing you're talking about on Magpul mags. There's another a similar the base loop plate that's got the yeah the thing on it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So. So some of the small mechanical shops serving the Finnish military, let's say they get in 10,000 East German, Russian, or whatever magazines, regular Kalashnikov magazines, and they are interchangeable with the RK-62, Chinese mags, German mags, Russian mags. Sometimes they will just send them all off to get a tab uh, welded on, spot welded on to the to the bottom forward edge of the of the magazine, so that they can still facilitate having that loop. It's it's very useful in in mittens. So you know they they're trying to plan for every contingency. Uh, when they capture uh, AK-47, say in uh, Afghanistan, and they sh they sent the shipping container back, they used the same process with those AK-47s that they used with their earlier acquisition of Nagants. They went through them, they figured out which ones worked, which ones didn't, they cannibalized them for parts. And then the cannibalized parts, a Chinese bolt is going to work in an RK-62 or an RK-76. If it needs a bolt, in the bolt goes. And they serial number it with an electric pencil right on the spot to the, to the uh, receiver number of that RK-62 or that RK-76 or that RK-95. That's what they do. Uh, uh, you'll notice that the spring guide is a little bit different. It's just a piece. You stick the spring in the back of the bolt carrier. 
and then you stick the guide into the back of the spring, you push it up tight, and then you then you you work it into its dovetail. It doesn't have that complicated flex joint that is such a delight to work on as a as an AK-47 uh, purveyor, like my friend uh, Brian Keeney at Occam Defense Solutions has to. Uh, that's just the way that they decided to do it. And uh, so you'll see an RK-62M, and it might have some Hungarian parts on it. It might have a Russian part or two. It may even have Israeli parts because the mag release is identical between the Galil and the Valmet. The Finns will use whatever they can acquire. The, Val, the, the Galil was, was developed from the Valmet with the Israelis coming up, acquiring some of the receivers, and then they decided to make theirs primarily in 5.56 millimeter. It is my opinion that it is too much rifle for not enough cartridge. I think that that 7.62 by 3.9 is is probably the ideal cartridge for that weight of rifle and that configuration, and it is the ideal cartridge for for the 300 meter and shorter battle that the Finns have to to potentially contend with. And so, by having one rifle system essentially in one cartridge they can train every single man every single woman to almost the same level of skill and marksmanship uh, i sent you a couple of weeks ago uh, kind of a nice youtube video of a finnish trooper uh, doing a quick magazine change on an rk-62 and racking the bolt incredibly quickly yeah do you, do you remember seeing seeing that yeah yeah. Uh, he's not special forces. He's some 19 year old conscript. You know, he might be a cafe worker or something like that. And you watch him. He's a stud on wheels with his fucking rifle because that's what he has to be. He has to protect his country. And there's nobody in that country gets shit up their neck about defending Finland. Right? They're very proud to do it. And this is the ideal weapon for them to use in defending their country whether they're fighting on skis or, or fighting in, in, in a swamp or something like that, they're going to do it. Or bicycles. So, uh, when, I, when I was over there, uh, I was looking around, and when I was a little kid, you used to see fallout shelter signs in schools and libraries and government buildings, that kind of thing. And they had a very particular yellow and blue coloring to them. And when I arrived in Finland, I started seeing a very similar um, sign up you know, on every building, not just government buildings. And it had a slightly different verbiage to it. It wasn't about fallout. It was like, you know, secure shelter area, something like that. And uh, over lunch, I was asking my, my Finnish coworkers about what the deal was because they looked a good deal older than, you know, from the 50s or 60s. And they said in kind of a low voice, well, nobody really likes to talk about it, but it's not if it's when the Russians roll through again and we are ready for them. And so the readiness, uh, gosh, I think it's a John Farnham quote. Readiness is a, um, this, I can't quite get it, but readiness is a, is a fact or something or willingness is a state of mind. Preparedness is a fact or a state of being. And they are, they are ready for when the Russians come next in a way that, I dearly wish our uh, our fellow countrymen 
uh, you know, would embrace that and our government would embrace that attitude of uh, we are all responsible for our collective security. That's a good point. Uh, Let's get back to the Brian. Let's get back to the differences here of the um, AK and Valmet. I think we got to the butt stock. Um, Let me pull that picture back up. Big difference there. Right. Right. And the safety configuration is the same. You could you could use any bolt bolt carrier, except you need that uh, that forward part on the on the on the gas piston. You could source parts very easily to repair the Valmet. Um, it's still going to shoot the 762 by 39, 123 grain load. You'll notice in the bolt body itself, it's got a channel for debris to fall out of it. You could you could put an Egyptian bolt, a Hungarian bolt, a German bolt in it. It's going to work. Uh, what makes the more accurate is the rigidity of the receiver. It is a milled receiver. The RK76 was their experimentation with a sheet metal receiver. And you'll notice that they dropped the RK-76 and went back to the RK-62. And then when they developed the RK-95, they went with another milled receiver. And it's not just because you can rebuild the receiver over and over again. It's because it is rigid. The, the barrel does not have a barrel pin. It is screwed in and relies on uh, to, to, to position the cartridge uh, going into the chamber. Uh, it has a chrome-lined bore, and uh, uh, on, on the more modern ones, obviously the Nagant barrel was not chrome-lined, so the first several thousand did not have chrome-lined bores. Um, it, the uh, gas tube goes into a dovetail on that forward part of the receiver, and it mates up with the socket of the gas block. And then the top cover in turn secures that in place. And it is identical on the Galil for uh, securing uh, the gas tube in place on the Galil. And if I may butt in for a moment, this is, I think, one of the big reasons you get an accuracy improvement um, with the gas tube is the way that it goes in there with the dovetail. One thing that I discovered in developing the Merc was that the, the, the handguard that Occam Defense sells is that the rigidity, the longitudinal rigidity of the gas tube turns out to be incredibly critical for accuracy. And with the way the gas tube slides in on a Valmet, um, it's functionally identical as a stiffener as to what we do on the Merc handguard in that we have a, a threaded system, but the, the result is the same in that when the barrel tries to recoil um, against the gas block uh, or the, when the gas block tries to whip up against the gas tube on the Russian version or the AKM, because you tilt the gas tube down in you necessarily have to have some slop there for it to clear um to clear the the uh the trunnion it, that's not the case when you slide in longitudinally here the other thing that is staggeringly brilliant about that gas tube is how cheap it is 
Um, we make our own gas tubes in-house, and the the amount of processing that I do on that, I have to have a custom extrusion made. And if you, I was making steel gas tubes, you have to heat them up and form them over a mandrel to get that fluting in there. And there's all kinds of spot welding and nonsense. Either way, there's a lot of labor there. And offloading that bother to the piston, which has these this star-shaped um, centering mechanism on it, that's a far easier feature to make than a fluted gas tube. And so it's cheaper and better and just, in my opinion, brilliant. Very good point. I, I would tend to agree. And if you look at the top cover, at the rear corner of the top cover, down at the, 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 the on the lower left of the top cover, you can see the reinforcing on there. And that's part of what keeps the top cover rigid. Uh, it fits into that uh, slot in the back of the receiver. And, of course, the spring guide locks it in place like any other Kalashnikov variant. Mm -hmm. So once your rifle is zeroed, it pretty much stays zeroed. And the reason they um, did that was because they put the, the, the rear sights on the dust cover, so they needed that dust cover to really hold in place. Yeah, uh, well, uh, a note about that. If it's a sheet metal dust cover, there's only so much weight you can park on it without it flexing under recoil. The more weight that you've put on top of it, the more it's going to tend to, to flex. So there's a finite amount of weight that you can park on top of it. You will notice that in both the Galil as well as the Valmet, they, 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 when they build in a scope mount, they do so on the left side of the receiver and the scope mount in no wise is affixed uh, to the top cover. Texas Weapons System, when they created their top cover, what they were doing was they were short-circuiting this by having a rigid top cover that is cast aluminum and then machined. It's, it, the Texas Weapons system, system top cover is superb. It's a great thing and it holds a zero pretty damn well. Um, you'll notice uh, at the Zenitco, the Russian manufacturer that is making uh, the parts to upgrade an AK-74 to an Alpha configuration, they've gone to all sorts of hell and trouble creating a flip-up uh, uh, M1913 rail, everything else, and it still can't be perfectly locked into place to retain its zero. Uh, you have to re-zero the weapon every time you clean it. So the the Valmet and, and Galil configuration is superior, just as the Texas weapon system uh, uh, version is superior. Uh, a friend of mine, Brian Keeney, makes or used to make a, a, a rear sight block with its own 1913 rail incorporated into it and a rudimentary fixed sight. Yeah, I wish we you had know, him on the you, show to talk about that. <laughs> so, oh wait a minute. Well, well I, I I bring it up because you know um, these these weapons are improved by the people who improve them, and they get improved with use. Um, competition is always about you know who's going to prevail, and that's why uh, it is auto racing that develops a new automotive technology, and it is war fighting that develops uh, new weapons technology. Or hunting, you know, hunting to a lesser extent, or fighting to a to to a greater extent. Yeah. So, 
I mean, we've I think we've pointed out the major differences. If you look at the fire control group, the receiver, um, the spring itself, those are all basically AK. It's all AK forty seven stuff. Is there anything else maybe we're Correct. missing that uh, that they improved upon? Oh, uh, I, I don't think so. Okay. I think we covered not, the basics. Yeah. I'm not seeing anything else. How about you, Brian? We haven't spent a whole lot of time on the threaded barrel, um, but uh, I think that it is a, see, two or three thou of slop of variation on threads is not a big deal. Two or three thou of variation on a press fit is the difference between 30,000 pounds and 5,000 pounds. And so, or 2,000 pounds, it's, it's highly nonlinear. And so as a manufacturing technology, um, I think that th changing to a threaded, I wish everybody had adopted it. I, it, it's kind of a pain in the rear for manufacturer, but not, it's like pick your poison. And I, I think that's threading the receiver, um, was a very clever thing to do and has been adopted. I don't know if the, were the Finns the first to do that, Nils, or were the Chinese, I know the Chinese had done it at one point. Well, I guess the Russians tried it early, early on um, well, and then abandoned they, it. They abandoned it because it was more compli complex for what it is that they were willing to do. So the, the Finns were the first to incorporate it into, a web, into a, an AK variant being issued to the troops uh, as a whole. Um, the, 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 the Chinese Type 56 uh, arguably is, is a 1956. Well, they weren't fielding the 1956 until the 1960s. Mm. Mm. I was yeah, trying to find a picture of a, one of their barrels. I can't find a picture of it threaded so i will uh forward you to the gun plumber the gun plumber <laughs> okay there's a tutorial here on rebarreling a galil is it a video or is it pictures no there's picture by picture so you will okay um can if you got it up right now it. just share your screen oh that's right yeah let me do that here a little screen share there save me some so we also want to talk about when you while he's pulling that up, Nils. We kind of want to talk a little bit about. So you had the AK, the Valmet was a spinoff of the AK, and then the Galil kind of took the Valmet and the AK, and then they came up with their own animal, which we we've done a whole big show on that. But kind of give me your take on um, what the Israelis did with the, the Galil from the Valmet? Well, the, the Israelis incorporated a, a NATO bayonet mount, a different flash suppressor, more like that of, uh, of an M16. They went with the 1 in 12 rifling, interesting, for the 5.56 or 223 uh, initially. Uh, uh, mimicking the early M16s, which were uh, more chambered for 223 than 5.56. I mean, the one in 12 rifling in that in that chambering ideally stabilizes lighter bullets like the 36 grain. Uh, so 
that was one thing that the Israelis did. The Israelis also built the Galil into a total weapons system, into like a light machine gun as well as a paratrooper carbine, that sort of thing. Yeah. You'll see wooden stocks for the Galil for sale from outfits like Botash. But then good luck finding the attaching hardware for attaching it to a Galil receiver. It's unobtainable. Uh, many people have, uh, have approached Botach and, and, and asked them, so where is the mounting hardware for this? And Botach doesn't even bother to respond anymore. Um, <laughs> so the Galil fielded in Israeli service is almost always fielded with a, a, a tubular side-folding stock instead of a fixed one. It has a different pistol grip, and it has a thumb safety, which operates the traditional Kalashnikov safety, the thumb safety being on the port side of the receiver, as opposed to the uh, standard uh, Kalashnikov uh, uh, safety, which is on the starboard side. Brian, stop sharing um, your screen so we can see that, what you're doing, what you're holding up right all now. All right. Please, sir. So my experience we'll with the, the Galil thumb safety, thumb safety is it's more trouble than it's worth. It, it makes a heck of a lot of noise. It's difficult to get adequate purchase on it if your hands are bloody or wet or that sort of thing. And you're just better off relying on the sheet metal safety on the starboard side using your index finger like this uh, than relying on that thumb safety. I'm, it, you know, it's a, it's a petty criticism I have for the, for the Galil uh, rifle. Uh, the Galil has a different shaped charging handle that sticks straight up that you can that you can get purchase of uh, either right-handed or left-handed doing a magazine change. Uh, in some in some ways, it is is superior. Uh, the later Volmet, the RK95, has one that sticks out at a 45 degree angle that you can get purchase of right hand, with right hand or left hand, uh, reaching over, reaching under, whatever. Um, but you can still use a standard Kalashnikov bolt carrier group with either a Galil or a Valmet. Um, the Galil has a different method of attaching its, its handguard, which is, a, an, a, you know, you, you turn it back like a key, uh, rather like the uh, AK-47 one. And it, uh, it doesn't uh, uh, enclose the top of the, of the gas tube, but it does reach up high enough to protect the user's hands if uh, one strings off a lot of fully automatic fire. Now, I will go back to saying that it is a lot of rifle for not much cartridge. That is not a criticism of the 5.56. The 5.56 has its role, but uh, that's a lot of weight. You're talking about a 10-pound, 12-pound rifle with some of the Israeli configurations just in 5.56 millimeter. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you'll notice that the Israelis have gone back to the M16 variant from the Galil. The Galils are only in, uh, there are other countries that use the Galil, uh, notably the Republic of South Africa, uh, Colombia, um, and Estonia, oddly enough, are all Galil users in 5.56 millimeter. Uh, you can make a Galil in 7.62 by 3.9 or in uh, 762 NATO, some people call it 308. Uh, uh, the guys at Lewis and Black were selling barrels for Galils in 762 by 39, and you can occasionally obtain one. 
Uh, I wish like heck Green Mountain regularly stocked them, but they don't seem to. No. We get on their ass about that. Damn them. Well, <laughs> well so, I'm, I'm not going to give Green Mountain a bad time. You know, sometimes think, you'll you'll see people talking about, well, it's a Green Mountain barrel. This one hasn't been cold hammer forged. Well, Green Mountain makes a pretty goddamn good barrel. Don't kid yourself. Where are they right? out of? I've not I've not heard of a lot about them. I think I believe they're up in Vermont. In Vermont, uh, actually, Conway, New Hampshire. On it might be North Conway. Okay, it's Conway, right. North Conway, or Ossipee, New Hampshire, and um, good folks up there. And yes, they make a heck of a nice champ. Or uh, the the rifling and and um, bore of their barrels is is very nice. Uh, are, are are guns still legal in New Hampshire? Kind of, but you know, Massachusetts is it has some parallels to national borders. The um, the the mass holes are are uh, invading in steadily increasing numbers and uh, really changing the politics up there. Unfortunately, uh, some of the some of my favorite uh, roughnecks in the army were from Western Massachusetts. Uh, in in New England, do you know what they call a, a redneck? It's called a swamp Yankee. <laughs> I knew I knew some guys in Third Ranger Battalion who were swamp Yankees who were who were hardcore hardcore guys, you know. But you're not going to find them in Boston, I'll tell you that. Right? I just got a text so, from Jim Fuller. Oh no! Did it? Did it? This just in. <laughs> uh, I had invited him to to jump on with us and talk about this, um, but he's he's got a disappointment, so he can't do it. Okay. Well, say hey to Jim Fuller for me. He's a great American in every sense. Yes, sir. Yeah. One of the pioneers so, here for the AK in America, definitely. And uh, he's been on the show a couple of times. Trying to get him back. Uh, we'll get him back on. We'll definitely get him back on. So I think what we should do now, I think we've, we've pretty much covered differences, You know, talked about the history of it, and uh, I think we should go to our listener questions now. Because I think they've probably got some, maybe some different things that maybe we haven't covered yet. So let's go to let's go to Instagram first. We'll go to Grams. And while I'm pulling this up, if you guys want to do any add-ons or talk about anything else, go right ahead. I didn't want to cut you off there. And we are giving away uh, Seal One Complete uh, Cleaning Kit. We're giving away Mission First Tactical uh, Dump Tray Slash Armors Tray. Um, go ahead. So you got a question, Brian? Yeah, Nils, the, um, the folding stock, uh, common to the Galil, uh, with the two, you know, maybe half inch tubes that are brazed onto the, you know, the shoulder mounting or shoulder mating feature. You were mentioning that the newer Valmets have that as a stock. And I'm wondering if, if, did the Israelis come up with that and the Finns borrowed it or was it the other way around? Well, the the folding stock on the RK95 is a side folding stock of a completely different configuration than the Galil, but you can use a Galil stock on a Valmet RK62, and you'll see Finnish reservists sometimes who have purchased their own Galil stocks and using them on their RK62s. Got it. Okay. Who was that from? That question from Brian. That was from me. Oh, okay. That was Brian. Mm -hmm. You're not eligible. 
No. So, uh, Marty, do you have a question? Do I have one? I, I do, and it goes along with one of our listener questions also. So I was kind of wondering, you know, because, because the Russians kind of figured it out because they started off with the milled, and then they switched to the stamped receiver. But it looks like um, the Finns, they like the milled a lot better. So why did they decide to go with the milled instead of a stamp? Because they did switch to a stamp in later versions, and then they switch back, switch back, and then they've switched back. And they've gone back and forth several times. Well, because in the long run, cheap is expensive and expensive is cheap. Uh, in hard military service, a sheet metal receiver can only be rebuilt so many times, whereas one of those milled receivers can potentially be rebuilt five, six, seven times. Yeah. And they're not cranking out millions of them <laughs> like, like Russia. Right. That's correct. So the cost. So that was from FPS Murdoch. So good question from F FPS there. Uh, Ken Allen training, okay. which I saw he uh, posted a pic with the ODS, Brian. About, yeah. About time um, you got one of those in his hands. Well, he's he's had it for a little bit, but he's a busy guy. And yeah, no, it yeah. took us forever to get him one also. So yeah, um, very, uh, very excited for his uh, long-term feedback. Yeah, uh, I had a little chat with him today, and he's uh, yeah, he's definitely excited about it. We talked, we were talking about ammo, had a little ammo talk. So he says uh, one of the tests uh, of the breed modernized but not bastardized. Oh, one of the best of the breed. Okay, so it's just a comment. Modernized but not bastardized. Okay, I need to put my glasses on. Shit, guys. <laughs> I'd agree with Ken's assessment there. There's a lot of really good stuff. Uh, the 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 three prong flash hider, the way that that's the the fine detail of how that's made is is pretty far ahead of its time from an understanding of the physics. Flash hiders, it turns out, are are not simple. I've failed a few times before we figured out how to how to get ours right. And um, yeah, there's some some features of it that are obviously correct. Um, well, let's rewind back to design. like you were talking about, Brian, the uh, threaded barrel, which I don't think we, I mean, you, you kind of hit on it, and um, but the benefit of having that threaded versus a, versus a pressed barrel like the AK, you, I mean, you, there's a whole lot of advantage to that. Yeah, yeah, there's there sure is if if you have modern equipment um, and uh, can pick where you start the threads. The the tutorial that we popped up a minute ago shows about spinning the barrel in, uh, time torquing it, timing it, marking it, having to pull it out again, cut the extractor cut in for the extractor on the bolt face. It needs a little bit of a clearance cut. That's what that little cut in the front in the, in the rear of a of an AK barrel is is for that extractor to have some clearance. Right. And um, the by threading it. Um, in that particular way, you should be able to time to just within a, a couple degrees. And um, so if your equipment, well, let me make an analogy that uh, ARs are becoming cheaper and cheaper because they lend themselves well to full automation and CNC equipment. 
Um, AKs have no such advantage, and that's why the cost of AKs is going up while the cost of ARs is going down. Now, I think the the um, martial benefits of the AK platform more than justify that that increased cost. Um, however, it is just a fact that that uh, the AR is is a more automatable design. Um, I I kind of go back and forth on the threading, but um, but it's something that I certainly think is a good idea, um, and uh, has a lot of merit to it. And pinning is drilling drilling barrels is a a very difficult thing to do well. Um, a lot of people, well. There are people in the AK industry, you just kind of go for it. And um, that's not something I hold with. Nils was talking about rebuilding a gun several times. Yeah. We control the run out of our, we drill to an accuracy of a thousandth of inch, an inch per run out per inch of length. What that allows you to do is rebarrel the same gun many times. It's one of the hidden benefits of, of our gun that I don't talk about a lot is that um, because we sweat those fine details, it's a gun that can be rebuilt, rebuilt many, many times. And that is not true, um, of other plot or other, if you're building off a surplus kit, you are slave by definition to how square that, that hole was drilled in the first place. And they can be off by 20 thousandths or more, um, from one side to the other. I've, I, I have some pictures that are just horror shows. You don't get that with the threaded barrel. You know, you can have, you're, you're not doing a lot of machining when you thread a barrel in. And how's the glil? How do they do theirs? Likewise threaded. Okay. It also allows for a smaller barrel diameter. Um, you'll note on, on the pictures of threaded barrels that the outside diameter is quite a bit smaller. This is true on Chinese uh, Mac 90s as well. What this allows you to do is use inferior metallurgy um, because you have more receiver or trunnion wrapped around the barrel and in the places where a receiver or a trunnion will traditionally fail on those varieties that have a smaller od on the barrel there's so much more metal around the barrel that you don't see that failure and to me that that's a better design yeah. now we build on the acam platform because those are the parts that i can buy but i really do like that smaller barrel diameter that you see on the uh, on the rks as well very good. We've got several questions on the sites. Um, J. Edgar Paradox, Guns, Oil, and Dirt, J. Mm -hmm. Allen. Um, if you would, Nils, again, let's talk about the, the rear sights that they've got on the dust cover and maybe the benefits, pros, cons kind of thing, and then what those offer versus – uh, the way the AK is set up with um, the sight block. Okay, so the AK-47 has open sights with a relatively short sight radius. Uh, that's not to say that the AK is inaccurate. It is not. It just takes a little more training to use the AK, and there are some refinements that can be made to the RK or the AK uh, by way of example, KNS Precision makes a fine bead front sight that I find indispensable with 50-plus-year-old uh, eyes. Uh, it makes shooting the AK that much easier. Now, when I look at the, the sights on a Valmet, uh, the sights on a Galil, I've got a longer sight radius, 
and I've got a peep sight, which is easier to center, especially if I'm shooting fast. So it lends itself to better marksmanship, the, the Valmet uh, or Galil configuration. Jaeger refers to that as shootability as opposed to accuracy, because you're quite right. The act, it's not an accuracy question. It's how easy, how well can you shoot it? Um, and yeah, that, I, I completely agree. The open top sites, one of the big downsides to them, um, if you have to squint a little bit, I'm left eye dominant. So if I'm shooting right-handed, I have to squint a little bit on open sites to get an accurate sight picture. And with that, I lose visibility as to what is happening. Let's say I'm enter, aiming center mass on a silhouette target. You don't get to see anything below where you're uh, sighting. And with peep sights, that's not the case. Uh, so f a far better design, in my opinion, with apologies to people who love opens. Well, and then when it comes to adjusting the sights on a Kalashnikov, you have to have a windlass to adjust for uh, uh, windage. You have to have a, that screw device to push the sight block uh, left or right, or you've adapted an RPK rear sight, which is adjustable for windage. The RPK rear sight is fantastic, but again, it's an open sight with a relatively short sight radius. And uh, that, that deficiency is overcome largely with the Galil and Valmet both. There you go. Store 96. Uh, this is one of our new AK Corner listeners. So, and we went over this. What are some of the major differences between a Galil and the Kalashnikov? And why did the Israelis go with that beautiful design? P.S. IWI.us, you guys make some beautiful guns. Definitely on my Christmas list. So... I think I think we covered that pretty pretty well. Was there anything else you wanted to point out about the differences in the the Galil and the Kalashnikov? We did a whole show on the Galil store, so go back and and listen to that. Probably pick up a lot of info from that episode. I couldn't agree more. There you go. Uh, let's see. Austin Whalen says he's never heard of this one. This is why I listen. He's never heard of the Valmet. Uh. It's rare. So Mustang Perry, what are the advantages the RK62 has over the traditional AK? We've talked about that. What are the improvements that IWA I made to the RK62 to get the Galil? We just did all that. So thanks for the question, Mustang. Hope we answered your questions. And if we didn't answer your question, you're listening to this and you've got more questions, shoot me an email, talkinglet at gmail.com. And uh, we'll try to find out the answers for you if you didn't have a chance to post your questions on here. I did do a late post. My apologies again. I should have posted this like Saturday or Friday. But this is a Monday show. It threw me off. <laughs> you were probably watching college football, weren't you, Marty? I was watching a lot of things this weekend, Niels. <laughs> I had a good time this weekend. I enjoyed my freedoms this weekend, brother. Outstanding, good man. Oh, let's see. There was a there's one I saw on here that was uh, Jay Allen says. Is there a tactical reason for the tubular stock? It's just odd looking, kind of like a shovel handle. Well, he's not wrong. It uh, it and um, 
even though it looks a bit clumsy, it's not at all clumsy once you shoulder the, the weapon and get a cheek weld on the stock. It feels quite natural. Uh, in cold weather, a man would be very grateful to have that rubber uh, jacket, that condom around the, uh, the tubular stock so his, his cheek isn't frozen to his rifle. Yeah, doesn't stick on there. And, of course, and we tell you, it's got storage in there. I got a question about the size of um, the actual butt stock itself, the shoulder. Uh, it's a lot smaller than, you know, like an AK. It seems to be, perceptually, just because I guess there's not as much meat on there. Is that because of the bulky clothes they wear in the winter? Well, uh, actually, it's about as broad as... Uh, an M16 stock. So it's actually wider against your shoulder okay. than, than, than the AK-47 stock. Now, it's shorter in height. Yeah, that's okay? what I was referring to, yeah. But you're still, you're packing it into the meat of your shoulder. Yeah. And recoil isn't an issue because of the weight of the receiver. It, it does look like it's a smooth shooting gun. I saw a video Larry Vickers did on it, and it, it seemed to be very smooth. You know, and there's this fundamental thing that the 7.6239 um, is just not a high recoil round in any sense of the word. And um, in colder temperatures, uh, you know, your bolt carrier speeds are going to be lower, so the felt recoil, um, you know, when they're properly gassed, uh, that's not that big a deal. And, and Nils also sagely points out that surface area is, is a big deal, right? Because that's your, let's say you have five pounds pushing backwards. Um, would you rather have that five pounds pushing against you with a stiletto heel or a, a knife blade or with a big, you know, round butt stock there? And, and, um, it, it would be interesting to know the, um, the sort of uh, not morphological, but the changes and differences in body type, you know, they, they, uh, since they, uh, field women as well as men, it would be interesting to know with that height, we, as we've played around a lot with stock design here with our, with our stocks. And, um, it would be interesting to know if a shorter height and a wider, uh, well, a bigger width is better. I, th I also suspect, though, that with plate carriers, that math changes pretty substantially. I tend to like a narrower stock if I'm running plates, mm -hmm. um, just because there's not that much meat. You know, you you can, yeah, narrower is better. Uh, so that's a worthy consideration. So this question, uh, and it's more toward the end of this question, is what I'm uh, interested in. The RK62 has a lot of unique features. I've always wondered about, this is from uh, Connor P. Norris. What was the inspiration or reason for early bicycle pistol grip and handguard, tubular stock, wire cutter, flash hider? Were the Finns really expecting some kind of World War One style combat in which the wire cutter was necessary? That's what I thought was a good question, kind of interesting. Why the wire well, cutter? They're not going to be invading anybody. <laughs> well... Part of defending yourself is the counterattack. And you're talking about a terrain where there are lots of narrow defiles where small number of troops can block larger numbers of troops as long as they've, 
you know, they got there first, they hold the high ground or the the field of fire that, uh, over the terrain that you have to traverse. And one of the ways to deny an area of movement is with wire obstacles. So it's foreseeable that you're going to need wire cutters when you're uh, counterattacking or attacking either one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think it's a neat thing to have on there. Um, you'll notice the M16 has no kind of wire cutter uh, feature to it, um, but it's a uh, it's a good thing. The AK-47 bayonet will cut that shit. is a wire wire cutter. Yeah, the K bars will cut that shit. They don't need that on there. On there. Okay. <laughs> okay, son. Um, the Galil, um, the RPK style Galil, the bipod on it has a wire cutter on it. I thought it was kind and of interesting. And a bottle opener. And a bottle opener. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Because they were using their magazines to open bottles and ruining their magazines. Yeah, well, who knew that the uh, Israeli army liked to drink beer so much, right? Were they drinking the pop or the beer? I don't know. Well, they're probably having a beer or two. Uh, (laughs) You know. It gets hot in the days. A few Budweiser's back we sent over there for them. Um, I think this will be the last question, unless you guys see another one on there that you want to field. This is from esum 87 and it says, what are your thoughts on the Russian ammo import band, and what do you think will happen to the market? Well, uh, doesn't nature just abhor a vacuum? So if the Russian uh, ammunition is banned, it uh, needs to go through Bulgaria and get the cans repainted is what it needs. Um, <laughs> that That's my thought on it. It's it's sloppy Joe. Uh, uh posturing for uh, his uh, constituency is all that it is. There are a lot of uh, countries that make 7.62 by 3.9 ammunition from the very expensive to the very inexpensive. Some of it is garbage ammunition where you're using hot water and detergent to wash your your weapon after shooting it. And some of it's very high quality. Uh, Finland fields ammunition under the name Lapua and they make the 123 grain you know, Cupro nickel jacketed, beautiful ammunition, but the Valmet doesn't have to have it. I mean, it can shoot that and it can shoot the cheapest Chinese copper washed steel ammunition, uh, the stuff that's coated in lacquer that it hates, that sort of thing. It'll just shoot it and shoot it and shoot it like any other Kalashnikov. What about you, Brian? Yep. Um, likewise, I think it's a short term blip. Um, we've been working for a little over a year now to do some importing of our own that's ongoing um but i agree i think word for word with what nils is saying um defiant munitions some friends of ours um in south dakota um pete over there is a great american loves the uh uh the ak and um he uh he sells a very fine uh cartridge that most recently is actually using Lapua brass. And um, it's, I've got some in the shop here that is, yeah, it's just stellar ammo. And so this is, I think, a great opportunity for an American. Hey, there we go. Um, this is a great opportunity for an American company like Defiant to step up to the plate. And we might need to pay a little bit more, but would I rather pay 
20% more and buy from an American all day long. And so it's my hope that um, uh, there's a patchwork of solutions. And uh, like Neil said, nature finds a way. So uh, short term, really annoying. But, um, you know, Jaeger has been saying for years, these are the good old days. And so, you know, it, if you haven't been stacking, you know, every every quarter or something, every three months, getting another case of ammo and sticking it in a place where you'll forget about it until you need it. You know, best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago. The second best time is today. So uh, I know it's pricey. I wouldn't necessarily buy right now. But, you know, the next little dip, um, real good time to stock up. If you don't have five or 10,000 rounds in your basement, you're doing something wrong. You're talking about those tuna cans, those beautiful Russian tuna cans? <laughs> Heck yeah. Like that? Yeah, there you go. Digging that. Digging that. All right. I think that does it for our listener questions. Uh, appreciate everybody taking the time on the short notice and, and getting your questions in. And let's pick some winners now. We want to pick uh, a winner for the dump tray and a winner for the seal one complete care cleaning kit and I can't even I can't remember what the other was gonna be so let's just do the two then oh are we gonna do Occam lube we're gonna give away any Occam yeah, lube? Heck yeah let's do another one of them there we go all right so Brian you pick you pick somebody to win the uh, dump tray you know you asked about additions. There's one last one on the Facebook here from Jason Story. In a survival situation, would you rather have the Galil or the AK, and what reason would you choose one over the other? I love that question. Okay. Um, if you don't mind just stepping back into that. And yeah, I'll let's pick do him it. As my winner. Um, you know, if it's the old school Galil in 5.56, then I'd pick an AK all day long. And I'm, I'm specifically accepting the gun I that I make because if I thought there was a better gun, I'd be making it. Um, so, uh, you know, if we're talking stock Galil, stock AK, if it's a Galil Ace um, in 7.62 or 5.45, it'd be that all day long. Um, which but which, if which it, caliber, though? If it's a, what's that? Which caliber? Pick one caliber. You can't either no. or pick one caliber. But they're so. Pick a caliber. Asking, Come like, on. What? what what kid is favorite? The one that's in my hand. I'll, I'll rip off James yet again in this conversation. <laughs> Depends on what country I'm in. Yeah, if you got to punch through stuff to to uh, to survive, if you have to turn uh, cover into concealment, it's 7.62. If it's open country and you just have to stack bad guys and, and uh, pull down a deer, uh, I think 5.45 is perfectly adequate. I was thinking more along the lines of, of ammo availability. So, like, if I was oh. in Russia, I would be doing 762. If I'm in America, I'd probably do 556. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. If we're playing that kind of game, yep, yep. Well, he says a survival situation, so. No, you're right. I I think that the 762 by 39 is almost as prolific as the 5.56 in this country now, especially given the number of SKS and AK shooters. Probably is. I, I think... I think for stopping vehicles, like putting holes in truck radiators and doors and stuff like that, I'm going to go 7.62 by 3.9 all day long. Mm -hmm. I have come to regard the 5.56 as more of a defensive cartridge than an offensive one. 
I agree with that. I would go with the the 30 cal definitely. Um and I would probably go with I don't know, that's the Galil or the If they're both chambered in the same thing, if I've got an ODS, I'm taking the ODS. <laughs> Thank you, Over sir. the Galil. I mean, I am. I'm, I'm all day long. That's the one I'm taking. But if it's not an ODS, I'm taking a Galil. Yeah, same, same. Yep. Now, other than those two, if you had another, if there was a third option in there, what would the third option be? What would you pick over both of those, if anything? Start with you, Brian. Oh, oh, you know, I want the just for, just for theatrics i want the right arm of the free world <laughs> i want a foul i know it's stupid but that's what i'm picking okay i've got a couple of fnfals and uh, i've got a legacy m16 uh with the one and 12 twist and the flip up sights and the three prong flash suppressor and uh, I've got like 2,000 rounds of 36 grain varmint grenade ammunition, and it's perfect for blowing people up up to 400 meters, right? <laughs> you know, it's a defensive weapon, though. It's not for not for taking doors down. There you go. Well, it's a survival situation. I don't situation. call my AR-15 uh, an AR-15. It's an M16 to me. I got my first one for free when I was 17. It came with lots of free ammunition and outdoor recreational activities. <laughs> so if, if you guys didn't hear our first episode with Niels, uh, we talk about his background, former military, um, some very good stories. You definitely want to go back to that episode. It was about four episodes ago, I believe, um, as you're listening to this. So go back and check that out. I think it was called, what did I call it? What was that whiskey y'all drank? Rebel Yell. It's called, I put, that was the title of it, Rebel Yell. <laughs> In honor of that whiskey. Yeah. I thought that was very fitting. All right. Uh, so you just picked Jason's story from Facebook to win. What did he win? He won the dump tray. Okay. So Jason's story, get in touch with me, talkingled at gmail.com, and let me know that you are the winner and what you won. And uh, we'll get Mission First Tactical to send that out to you. AK Corner logoed, or it might be something else logoed, but it should be an AK Corner logoed dump train. Although they made some up for um, NRA. Of course, we didn't go to NRA. So, <laughs> so I've got a bunch of trays and stuff with the uh, Caltech and Talking Lead logo that uh, we'll probably be giving those away too at some point. All right, Niels, you pick a winner. From Instagram or Facebook? Uh, I don't have a link. Oh, you're so, not linked uh, up. Not sure. Okay. No, I'm not. I will pick one for you to win the... Would you, Marty? To win the um, Lube. Let's do the Lube on this one. And I really like the ESUM87 uh, question. Is What are your thoughts on the Russian ammo import ban? I like that question. So I'm picking ESUM87. You're going to win the Occam Lube. Again, send me an email, talkingletgmail.com. And make sure you got your contact information, your your address, because we got to send it somewhere. Just don't send me 
send me an email saying I won and what you won. Got to have a place to send it to also. Esam, shoot me an email, tinyledgmail.com. You win the uh, Occam Lube. And one more thing, we're going to give away the seal one. And I usually have a, a seal one bag here, but I gave it away a few weeks ago to my cable guy because <laughs> he came to fix my internet and he showed me his AK. Uh, here's the dump tray. Uh, but the seal one cleaning kit comes with their awesome paste. It's got the liquid. Uh, it's got the pre-soaked bore pads in there. Uh, it's got a cleaning cloth, a brush, uh, everything you need to get your guns clean. Seal one and done. And it's a dry lube, guys. There was a post the other day somebody made about they'd use seal one in a, in a, a desert situation, and it basically cemented their gun together. Well, it, it, it's a dry lube. You put it on, and then you wipe it off. You let it soak in for a little bit, and let it do its job, and then you wipe it off dry. That's how that works. Let's see. Brian, you want to pick another winner? Did we lose Brian? I think you're muted, buddy. He's muted. You're muted. You're so muted. <laughs> Sorry about that. I was saying I just closed the Facebook windows. Can you find the gentleman that... Uh, <laughs> Nils. Um, Nils, if for you guys watching the video, uh, Nils <laughs> should have had... A, a giant career in punk rock and um, something like Alice Cooper or something like that. He would have been phenomenal at it. Um, the sex I pistols. My window with, with Facebook, but the gentleman who made the bicycle uh, comparisons, um, that was uh, a good one. There was a couple. Let's see. But that was on Facebook, wasn't it? Let's see. I think so. Uh, Connor P. Norris. Yeah. So Connor P. Norris, he said the RK-62 has a lot of unique features. I've always wondered about what was the inspiration or reason for the early bicycle, pistol grip, handguard, tubular stock, wire cutter, flash hider? Yep. Is that the one? Okay. There you go. Connor, you win the seal one. Seal one and done. Get in touch with me. Talking at gmail.com. Tell me what you won. Give me your shipping address, all that good stuff. Shirt sizes, too, because some of these guys might throw a shirt in. So... Give me your shirt sizes, too. You just never know. You never know what we're going to give away here. And, Brian, we still have a, an IWI Galil Ace that we're going to be giving away. I am so stoked for that. We were going to give it away at NRA. Didn't happen. Which is good because we didn't really have anything planned on how to give it away at NRA. So it worked out good for that. <laughs> so that's going to give more people more time to enter it once we do decide. So I've been getting with Jeremy. He's been really busy lately, but uh, we're going to get together, figure out a way on how we're going to give away an IWI Galil Ace. I don't know which caliber yet. So all that's still kind of up in the air. Guys, that does it. Great episode. I learned a shit ton. I thought I had done my research, but listening to Neil's talk, man, just really educated me, man. Appreciate that. Big time. Well, yeah, thank likewise. you for putting up with me. I hope I, I lent something to an interesting discussion. No, absolutely. And I got to tell you, man, from the last time you were on, the feedback has been phenomenal. Everybody's wanting to have you back on. So um, I think we're, we're due for a round three, brother. All right. Well, you you just uh, nominate an interesting subject, and I'll be ready to discuss. You never know what we're going to talk about here. So, 
Guys, what go. What we really need to do is yeah. get a few whiskeys in them around a campfire and uh, hear the 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 dark and dirty tales of being a, a PI in uh, in LA when when he doesn't think anybody's listening. So we'll figure <laughs> out how to engineer that. I'm as innocent as an angel. <laughs> I was once sitting at a bar uh, a long time ago. And the guy uh, was drinking in the bar, and he was really upset because he'd taken a pinch the night before for soliciting prostitute. And uh, naturally, it was a vice officer. And uh, the bartender said, now, isn't that like the third time you've been arrested for soliciting? And uh, the guy says, yeah, I, I just, I was wondering how would a, how a guy would be able to pick out cops from whores in this city and the bartender wiped the the counter down and he said it's easy man in los angeles the hookers have dirty feet and the cops have dirty hands <laughs> i don't want anybody to think that i'm saying this of los angeles police it was just his observation about the vice unit operating in van nuys at the time and that's it so <laughs> The hookers have dirty feet. <laughs> so there you go. We got we got to talk about dirty hookers on the next one. I would love that. I don't, man. You, you did. This is a family channel, Marty. You know, keep a civil tongue in your head, young man. You know better than that. <laughs> but yeah, guys, um, go and support those that make this show possible. Mission First Tactical. Check them out, missionfirsttactical.com. They went through some bad juju when those uh, storms came through. Uh, a few weeks ago, shut them down. So they've been uh, trying to get back up and running and, and meet all the demands that they've got. But they're still taking the orders, and you can still use that code LEADHEAD. You're going to get 20% off at Mission First Tactical on their magazines, their AR accessories, their LEADHEAD brigade logoed items that they've got there, the wallets, the dump trays. MissionFirstTactical.com. Of course, SEAL1. Go to SEAL1.com. It's not .net, which is what the way it was in the past, but it's .com now. You go to seal1.com, and uh, you can get all of their products there, seal one and done. Follow the directions, because there are directions. There's a, there's a way to do it, uh, and you only need to do it once. And you use the code LEADHEAD, you're going to get 25% off at seal1.com. And then, of course, Factory 47 to get our logoed, AK Corner logo shirts and hoodies. You go there, James will take care of you guys. He's going to set you up with a, a discount code LEADHEAD, 10% off, Factory 47. And he even dedicated his – we've got our own page on Factory 47, Brian. He put up a link, and they just click on that, and it'll go to all our AK Corner stuff. Very, very cool. That is awesome. Makes it easier for you guys. Or you can just go to my website. I've got links there. It'll take you right to it as well. Uh, and then – Occam Defense Solutions and Occam Lube. Brian, what's going on with you guys? Well, we're getting closer and closer to dropping that next product. Um, hopefully any day now. We have uh, four-prong uh, Helix flash hiders that are dead air compatible. Uh, we're out of stock at the moment, but I have it on good authority. They're showing up Wednesday. So uh, they are available in 5A's 24 uh, half 28 and 14 one left for all of your mainstream suppression uh, needs and uh, be pleased to earn your business. 
There you go. And you go to OccamDefense.com, and the link to Occam Lube is there also. You go and yep, and OccamLube.com for that one. And you use the code Leadhead at Occam Lube, and you get ten percent off on Occam Lube. So very good. Go and support our sponsors. They're the ones that make this show possible each and every week. And of course, IWI.us on their social meds. Uh, follow Jeremy Gresham too. He's been doing uh, some competition shooting recently. Been posting some videos. I don't know if they've been putting it on the IWI stuff or not, but um, pretty cool stuff there with Jeremy. But yeah, that's how yeah, we tell we do it. Gun companies out here that are not run by gun people, and IWI is not one of them. Jeremy is legit. Loves America. You know, all around goodness. Former military, absolutely. Yep. Good guys. Good guys. So until the next episode, and Niels, don't hang up this time. Just hang on when we sign off, okay? <laughs> don't hang up on us. Uh, I didn't do anything. <laughs> last time you just bugged out and hung, out, hang up, hung up on us after we were doing the sign off. Did you not hear me cussing you at the end of the show? You didn't even listen to I it, did you? I certainly didn't. <laughs> my, Marty, my ears weren't even burning. I didn't cuss you hard enough then. That was my bad. leadheads until the next episode of the ak corner next month i think we're talking about the uh, ak-74 next month Uh, i think that's on the Uh, wonderful beast she is and it looks like we might be getting jim fuller on an upcoming episode too so cross your fingers until then say your prayers you might win that iwi gorilla out all right don't hang up Niels.